Today's reading is from Mark 11:15 through 19. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Jason, staff pastor here at Grace Downtown, and we're so glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. As you just heard Maggie read from Mark chapter 11, that's where we are at this morning as we are taking this journey through the book of Mark, looking at the teachings, the life, the ministry, and eventually the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Preschool and elementary school kids, you can follow the orange and blue signs right over here. Uh, You can meet up with your teachers right over here at the signs and head downstairs, and you guys will be back up at the end of the service. We'll give them a, a minute to get settled here. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Mark 11. We're covering a very large passage uh, this morning. And so I'll have the references up on the screen. But if you have a Bible, um, I would encourage you to follow along as we open up the scriptures this morning. Throughout Mark, Jesus has said that he is headed towards Jerusalem. He said this in a couple of different ways. One of those is he has inferred that he is headed towards Jerusalem by saying that he was going to have a confrontation with the chief priests and the scribes. He hasn't necessarily couched it as a confrontation. He said, they're going to challenge me and eventually put me to death. And then three days later, I will rise. And just as we've talked about, as we've gone through Mark, uh, the disciples and others were confused when Jesus would talk in this way for a multitude of reasons. Then in chapter 10, uh, one chapter ago, he got explicit. In Mark 10, 33, he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. Last week, what we covered was the first 11 verses of Mark 11, where we saw Jesus finally come into Jerusalem, and we saw how it's a little bit anticlimactic, but today, we are going to see him come in confrontation with these chief priests and scribes as he marches towards the cross. As we get started this morning, would you pray with me and for me? Heavenly Father, thank you that we have been able to worship you with our voices. We want to continue to worship you with our minds. We want to eventually, at the end of this day, worship you with our hands and our feet, and we want to uh, hear from you today. Father, thank you that you've spoken through your word and your spirit and your people, and we want to have ears to hear. God, we pray that we would have humble hearts ready to receive. God, we pray that your word would do the work that you have set it out to do this morning. We pray that you would speak to each man, woman, and child here in the room. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'll put the references up here on the screen. First, we'll see a little bit of introduction. This is going to have bearing on the rest of the passage. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14. On the following day, meaning the day after the triumphal entry, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. 
When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And this his disciples heard. A couple of notes here. First, we need to take note that Jesus was hungry. Jesus was hungry. We have talked a lot about how Jesus was fully man and fully God. This and other pictures throughout scripture show us and remind us that he was fully man. He was hungry and he was looking for something to eat. We see also Jesus from the cross say, I thirst. We see at the death of Lazarus, Jesus say, uh, or we read that Jesus wept. Jesus is a man. He experiences hunger and thirst and longing and physical pain, just like you and I do. So when we read in scripture that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, this is one of the things that he's talking about. I would have been remiss to just skip past that. But the question remains in this story, why does Jesus get so upset with a fig tree? It's a very unique story. We see Jesus get upset with religious folks. We see him get upset even with his disciples, even using sarcasm at times. But here Jesus gets angry at an inanimate object, a fig tree. And not only that, but he curses this fig tree that it would never produce fruit because it doesn't give him fruit. And we're told it's not the season where it should give fruit. It's like going up to a corn stalk that is not ready to be harvested and saying, give me food right now. That's what Jesus is doing. How do we make sense of what Jesus is doing here? Well, we need to continue to read the passage to see what he's trying to say. Then we come to Mark chapter 11, the verses that Maggie read for us. I'll highlight uh, just briefly here. They came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold things in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. We need some context and some history to understand what's going on here. First, there were people selling these animals so that they could be sacrificed in the temple. This is very common. This happened throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. The problem was they were normally sold outside the temple so as to not interrupt worship. And in particular, to not interrupt the worship and the prayer of the Gentiles. But instead, these people have moved inside and they are in the area for the Gentiles to pray and worship. And they have taken that part of the temple over so the Gentiles can't pray and worship to sell these things that are to be sacrificed, to profit off of what's taking place here in the temple. So Jesus comes in and he's very angry about this. We need to learn more to see why he is so upset about this. The first thing that we need to know is that the temple is very big. If someone came into this room right now and started flipping over seats and tables, we would notice. It's quite loud in here. If you sneeze or a child drops all of their colored pencils, you hear it in this room. Not that that would ever happen. Um, But it's very loud in this room. It's not that big of a room. The temple was very large. And if Jesus went into one area where things were being sold and he did these things, they would not notice on the opposite side of the temple. There's an outer court. It's kind of like a corridor. And he's doing this in one part of it. And they were probably doing the same thing on the other side of the temple. And they would not have even known that Jesus is doing this. A couple of other things of note is here. We see blatantly the anger 
of Jesus. It catches us off guard to see Jesus get angry to the point of flipping over tables and chairs, especially in a religious setting in the temple. Why is Jesus getting so angry? Have you ever heard the term or have you ever used the term righteous anger? Maybe you've described something that you had as well, but it was righteous anger. One time um, I was playing football with some friends and my brother was involved in the game as well, as he often was. And someone was playing very rough and was playing rough against him. He was one of the smaller kids because he's quite a bit younger. And so one of the people playing football was, I felt like playing very rough with my brother. And I told this guy to stop. He hadn't stopped. He was about 10, 15 feet away from me. And I told someone to go long for a pass. We were just kind of goofing off at the time. And I told someone to go long for a pass. And I took the football and I went like this and hit the guy right in the face. And I was like, my bad, my bad. Totally did it on purpose. Not one of my best moments, admittedly. But these are the moments where we say, well, it was righteous anger. It was righteous anger. I've had uh, men that I was counseling that were struggling with violence in the home, violence towards their wife and kids, and violence with inanimate objects in the home say that they were struggling with righteous anger. So we use righteous anger to explain away a lot of things. Here we see Jesus getting angry. Is he guilty of the same kind of righteous anger? Or is it a different anger that's taking place? Isaiah chapter 9 is a passage that you're probably familiar with. Even if it doesn't come to the top of your head right away, you will remember you have heard the last couple of verses, especially this time of year. Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. It says that it is zeal for the Lord that will cause Jesus to be what this passage is prophesying he will be. And then in Isaiah 56, verse 7, it says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So Jesus is pointing them back to these concepts. These concepts of zeal for the house, uh, propelling, motivating Jesus' actions, and this idea of his house, his temple, being a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus is pointing to these concepts saying, this is what God's house is supposed to be, and this is what you've turned it into. I think we can deduce from these concepts that Jesus' anger is indeed righteous. It's zeal for the Father's house that is consuming him, and it's the purpose of the temple that is consuming him, that is propelling his actions. Verse 18 of Mark chapter 11. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. We read very clearly here what the motivation of the chief priests and the scribes was. Look carefully at what it says here. The chief priests and scribes heard 
what was going on. They sought a way to destroy Jesus. And what was the reason? They feared him because the crowd was astonished or amazed at the things that Jesus taught. The chief priests and scribes see that people are responding to Jesus. There's something taking place with this teaching. And now he's not just doing it out in the villages, out in the sticks somewhere. He's doing it in Jerusalem. He said all along, I'm going to Jerusalem to face the chief priests and the scribes. This is the chief priests and scribes territory. This is the religious center. This is where the temple in Jerusalem is. And the people are astonished at Jesus. And they're beginning to follow Jesus. We'll continue on in verse 20 here through 25. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Okay, back to the fig tree. And Peter remembered and he said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but he believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. There's two things going on here in what we just read as Jesus explains what's going on with the fig tree. The first one is we start to understand the fig tree analogy, what he's doing. It's a living metaphor that he's doing with this fig tree. And then we see where true power comes from. So we learn about the fig tree and we see where true power comes from. First, the fig tree. In the Old Testament, in the books of Jeremiah, Hosea, and Joel, the figure of a fig tree is used as a direct metaphor for the people of Israel. For the people of Israel. So Jesus is referring back to this metaphor and he's making it a living, breathing metaphor by cursing the fig tree. The fig tree metaphor that really came to life is really the Old Testament warnings of Jesus coming to life. Where God had said, if my people, who I have brought up to be my representative kingdom people, if they don't produce fruit, they will wither away and be cursed and cut off. And I will welcome in the nations. We see this prophesied in the Old Testament and then Paul in the book of Romans says, look, it's happening right here. So Jesus is turning this metaphor into a real life situation with the fig tree. See, Jesus was so upset because the Jewish people were not doing what he had called them to do. Their lives had become this living metaphor and the Gentiles were starting to be excluded from God's plan and literally physically from his temple. The area where they were to worship and pray had been taken up by these money changers. God's plan from the beginning was to draw all nations to himself. It's throughout scripture. I wanted to start quoting scriptures from the Old Testament here, but there's so many. We would run out of time to look at them this morning. I'll point to a couple because there's a direct connection to what's happening in this scene. Turn with me if you have your Bibles to Isaiah 56. I referred to this earlier where he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Jesus points to that scripture for a reason when we see it in context. Isaiah chapter 56, we'll read verse three and then verses six through eight. 
Isaiah 56, verse 3. Verse 3, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Directly talking about the Gentiles being included in the fruitfulness of the kingdom. Verse 6, and the foreigners who, who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those who are already gathered. But wait, there's more. In verse 9, Jesus said, or Isaiah says, But my watchmen, my religious leaders, my shepherds have become dogs who devour my people, sleep all day, and indulge themselves. This scripture is exactly what's taking place with the fig tree, with the house of prayer, with the den of robbers, with the chief priests and the scribes. This prophecy in Isaiah is coming to pass and Jesus points it out in every way in this whole story. Back to Mark 11. They came again to Jerusalem and he was walking in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Love that. Love how Jesus always answers a question with a question. By what authority are you doing these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John, meaning John the Baptist, from heaven or from man? Answer me. Verse 31, and they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe in him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people for they all held that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. <laughs> Jesus, so funny. Peter and Jesus both say that John was a messenger with authority and a word from the Lord. The chief priests and scribes say that they don't want to get involved in this. They don't acknowledge where true authority comes from. They don't acknowledge that John the Baptist had authority. They don't acknowledge that Jesus had authority. They're more concerned that their authority is slipping through their hands. They're failing to see that Jesus has the authority because it's given to him by God. Jesus' actions and words showed what was in the hearts of these religious leaders. They loved their control over him. They loved their control and their place of power and authority more than they loved the person and the work of Jesus and the glory of God. It's so easy for us to connect all of these dots from Isaiah 
and the religious leaders and Jesus' prophecies all coming to pass. And we know the rest of the story. They're eventually going to crucify Jesus after arresting him, after beating him, after handing him over to the Romans, after taking him back and then crucifying him. It's so easy for us to look back at them and be like, yeah, those religious jerks. It's so easy for us to say slogans like it's a relationship and not a religion. It's so easy for us to cast aspersions at other people that we think are just religious. But at our heart, we love what religion does for us. We love what religion does for us. And in just a moment, I'm going to talk about the religion that we're all familiar with, religious practices when it comes to church and Christianity. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But before I do, I just want to take a note and point out that uh, this may be you or it may be as you look out in the culture that we live in. um, Everybody has religious practices. Everybody worships. Everybody is grasping for authority for control, for a sense of certainty, even if they would not consider themselves a religious person. Politics become religious in how we use them. All kinds of things can become something that we're just using to make some sense of our life. So whether you consider yourself a religious person or not, or whatever we see in our culture, we all have religious practices. So I want to point that out as we get into this. So, Why do we reach for religion? What does it offer us? A few quick things, and then we're going to talk about some bigger categories. Religion monetizes everything. Not with money, currency. I guess sometimes it could. But more what I mean is it gives us a currency for life. It gives us predictability. If I do this then God will do this. If I do this, then I'll have some kind of control and power and authority over how my life goes and how other people's lives go too. It gives us a sense of predictable outcomes. If I do this, this is what will happen. Ultimately, religion makes God into our image. Instead of remembering that we're made in the image of God, it tries to make God into the image of man. So these practices and thinking in this religious way impacts our view of God, of self, and of others. So let's take a look at those three categories. We think that we can gain control over God, ourself, and others. First, God. We prefer a God we can manage over one we cannot understand. God does all kinds of things that we do not understand. Like flipping over money changers' tables by allowing suffering in the world, by allowing loved ones to leave us or to pass away. He does all kinds of things that we don't understand, and we would prefer a God we can manage. So we build religious practices or thought experiments or whole systems of doing things around managing God. So that we can have a God that's predictable, that we can understand, and this sounds really awful, but even that will follow our lead, that will obey us. Again, we try and make him into our image. This gives us a sense of control over a view of God. Maybe you've heard someone say, when confronted with a new idea of the God of the Bible, they say, I can't think of a God who would X 
Well, that's us making God into our image. When we're clearly presented with who God is and what he does in scripture, it may be hard to understand, but some things are plain, but sometimes it goes against our sensibilities because we've made a God in our own modern image. Next, we try to gain a sense of control over ourself. We try to gain a sense of power and authority for ourselves. This is what the chief priests and the scribes were doing. This is what we've seen the disciples do from time to time in the book of Mark. They're trying to gain a sense of control and power over their own anxieties and fears and lack of power. So religion gives us a sense of self. It gives us a sense of goodness. We read in scripture in Luke 10, 29, man comes to Jesus and he says, who is my neighbor? And we hear the story of the good Samaritan and we hear that this question is asked by the scribe because he was desiring to justify himself. That's at the heart of it. We really want to justify ourselves and know that we are good, know that we are right, know that we are the ones who are just. And so religion can give us a sense of self. Lastly, it helps us gain control over others. If we can know who is good and who is bad, if we can know who our neighbor is, then we can have a sense of exclusion. We can have a sense of identity for ourselves and the people around us, and then we can know who the bad guy is. This is something that has always been a part of human nature, but man, there's a lot of tools and there's a lot of things going on right now that has fed this idea in humanity. It's no longer a difference of opinion or trying to understand where someone else is coming from. It's that's evil. That's bad because it's different than the way that I think. So we try to gain a sense of control over God, over self, and over others. But at the end of the day, we think all of these things offer freedom, but they only enslave. They enslave us, they enslave others, they cause us to start treating others unfairly. Everything is an us versus them mentality. We see tribalism take place, we see narcissism take place, because we're just focused on me and my tribe. This is what the chief priests and the scribes were wrestling with. This is why Jesus was a threat. This is why they were afraid of the people that were responding to Jesus' teaching. So what is the anecdote to this? What are we to see in what Jesus is doing and what he is offering? The good news of Jesus offers good news about God, ourself, and others. The good news of Jesus is good news about God, self, and others. The good news, the gospel of Jesus, what Jesus came to preach about, show, and do with his life, death, resurrection. First, it gives us a picture of God that no other religion has. Gives us a picture of God that, of course, we don't always understand his ways, but we get a picture of God that he is not giving us 12 steps or 100 steps or a million steps to get to him, but he comes down to us. That's what we just focused on, meditated on, and celebrated at Christmas. Jesus, the Emmanuel, God with us, steps down and becomes like one of us who thirsts, who hungers, who gives his very life 
for us. We see in the Bible, we see in the teachings of Jesus, the things that he did in his resurrection, we see a picture of God that no other religion offers us. Maybe you've heard the phrase, all religions are the same before. Well, they have similar components, but none have a God like that. Except Christianity, except for what we read in the Bible, except for the things we see Jesus do and say. Next, the good news of the gospel gives us grace that doesn't make us feel good about ourselves, but it makes us worship God. We're all looking for something that affirms us and tells us how great we are and how right we are, and we look for things that do that. But it's only in the gospel of Jesus that we get a true picture of who we are, but we get good news for the problem that we see. Because when we see who we really are, we see some problems. If we're honest with ourselves, if we really look ourselves in the mirror, spiritually or relationally, morally, when we really look ourselves in the mirror, we see we do not measure up to our own standards or God's standards or society's standards. We can't measure up. When we see that, it can be terrifying unless there's good news. That's what Jesus comes to do. He shows the chief priests and the scribes exactly who they are, and he offers good news, and some believe and some don't. The good news of the gospel gives us a proper view of self so we can have a proper view of others and we can know how to love and care for them. Lastly, it makes us generous, hospitable, and gracious towards others, particularly those that are different than us. This is a radical idea. This is radical good news that the world does not have to offer. Our world and our own humanity revolves completely around defining who is we, who, what is my tribe, so now I can say everyone else is outside of that tribe. The good news of the gospel of Jesus gives us good news for us, it gives us good news to share with others, and then because of the entire story of Scripture, we have good news that is particularly for people that are different than us. We not only look to tolerate people that are different than us, we seek them out to show them the love of God. That's the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And last time I checked, it's still good news. It's still changing lives. It's still good news that the world does not have to offer. It's still building a biblical community of people in God's kingdom that there is nothing in the world like it. Jesus and what he offers us is good news of great joy for all people. Here, Jesus tells them where true power and true authority comes from. It's given by the Father to Jesus, first and foremost, and then he says, it's to whoever I and the Father give it to. And then, in six days, from what we're reading in Mark chapter 11, six days from this point and this moment of flipping over the tables of the money changers in the temple and the fig tree and everything Jesus is doing here in chapter 11, Jesus is going to take that power and that authority that God has given him and he's going to lay down his life. Because he is not content with building his own kingdom without including 
peoples from all tribes, tongues, nations, and people. So Jesus doesn't just come to tell you what the kingdom of God is like and then say, good luck, people, I'm going back. No, he lays down his life so that people like you and me can know that there's good news. And we can have good news to share and we can be a part of his kingdom. That's amazing good news. The kingdom of God includes a wretch like me and gives me a love for others who are different than me. But the kingdom of man only enslaves us and others. That's what Jesus is communicating. Some believed, some rejected it. Would you take a moment in reflection this morning and just pray? When I say pray, a lot of things may come to your mind, but it's simply talking to God. Maybe you would feel like you've never done it before. Maybe it's clumsy for you. Maybe you don't feel worthy. I just ask you to spend a moment and ask God to show you the good news of the gospel and ask you to consider receiving and believing the good news of the gospel this morning, not just knowing it in your head, but really responding to the things that Jesus was saying. Jesus, we worship you because you're worthy of our praise. We want to continue to worship you with our voices. We want to worship you with our hands and our feet because you're worthy of our praise. Thank you for inviting someone like me into your kingdom. Thank you for then sending me out with good news of great joy for all people. God, we pray that we would be a people that worships you. God, you no longer live in a temple. You no longer live in a tabernacle or an ark. You no longer live in just Jerusalem or any one place. God, you are in us and you call us your church. You call us the temple of the living God. So God, I pray that we would be a house of prayer. I pray that zeal for your glory and the knowledge of you would consume us and drive everything in our life. God, may we be your good news people. God, we want to sing about your good news. We want to remember all that you've done in the gospel this morning. And we ask you to continue to speak here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.